You and I both know that crypto is rapidly becoming the future of finance. You will also probably be aware that investing in crypto can seem a little daunting or even just outright confusing. The real question is, is how do you break down those barriers so that you can confidently invest in crypto in a way which is both profitable and sustainable in the long run? Join me on my journey to helping new crypto investors go from prospects to pros in crypto investment. Whether it's a Bitcoin or Bored Ape, I've got the insider tips and tricks so that you can take those steps towards the financial future that you've always dreamt of. My name's Christopher Hitchin. Welcome to the Easy Crypto Podcast. Here's a short message from our sponsors, MineEasy. Do you want to get started in crypto, but you're worried that you've missed the boat with Bitcoin? Fear not, there is a better way. So what is the better way to get started in crypto? Well, most people fail in crypto because they lose money buying crypto coins. Why buy crypto coins when you can mine them yourself? MineEasy can show you a quick and easy way to get started mining cryptocurrency in less than 10 minutes. Our quick and easy guide to NFT crypto mining can help you unlock the secrets to a brighter financial future through mining so that you can make money in the booming crypto industry without the huge risks of buying crypto at the wrong time. We'll show you how mining can maximise your profits and minimise your risk. It's the perfect way to start your crypto journey. Find out more at minewithnfts.com. That's minewithnfts.com. It's Chris from Easy Crypto, and on this week's show, we have Brian DeMint. Now, we're going to start by asking that first question that we always ask, and that is, Brian, how did you get into crypto? Tell me well, about <laughs> Thanks, Chris. It's great to be on your show. Um, so I, I, like everybody, you heard about it first. Probably most people passed it off as magic internet money, and that was, that was the camp I was in. So that was about 2012, 2013 that I was starting to hear rumblings of it. Um, read a few articles on it, and it, it just seemed really apparent to me that it was a scam, probably a Ponzi scheme, something to that effect. Um, it wasn't until I had a few more friends say, hey, you need to take a closer look at this. And so I actually looked at it more skeptically. I, I, I said, you know, I want to I dig into this stuff because I actually want to prove these friends wrong and, and tell them kind of how dumb they are. <laughs> um, so anyways, one day I was listening to a, an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast and he had on Andreas Antonopoulos. I, are you familiar with Andreas? I'm not. No. No, he's, I, I, he, he has great content. He, he's, a, I think you'd like him. He's, he's very technical. Um, he's not, he's not one necessarily to talk about price. He's really big on, on Bitcoin and, and Ethereum fundamentals. Um, but anyways, one of the things that he said on that podcast, and it was kind of a light bulb moment for me, this was, I was coming back from vacation, I think it was 2014 by this point. And he said, the thing that clicked for me was what was so important in 2009 that Satoshi created when they, when he created Bitcoin and blockchain was that for the first time in human history and computer science history was that we could create something or we could take something that was digital and make it finite. Because up until that point, whether it was a, a song file or uh, an image or a video file or just even text, you could copy it and you could paste it infinitely. There was no way to cap that. And so that, that clicked for me because it resonated so much because of the fact that I realized, well, the economy, the world is going digital. And in order for us to have a digital money, a truly digital money, you need to have a way to make it scarce. And I said, 
aha, this is it. So my skepticism in that moment turned to this is the future because in order for us to have a fully digital ecosystem, you need to have scarcity or at least the ability to create scarcity. And we've seen that you fast forward to 2022 and NFTs and, you know, are, are, are one of the coolest and hottest things out right now because of this digital scarcity. The fact that you could make a piece of art digital and scarce is really important. If you go back to 2000, I don't know if on your side of the pond, you guys had Napster um, or any of these music file, you know, yeah. Uh, music sharing programs that disrupted the music industry because once music went from albums and you know, records and CDs, and it went to digital MP3 files, people could just copy it, put it on the internet and then share it. And there was no way to cap that. And so I saw that as a big problem, especially you know, how are they going to do this with money? And so once I realized that the blockchain was the answer to that, I said, you know what, I'm going to start buying. So 2014 was when I was when I got into it. Um, I started out as purely Bitcoin investing and then have branched out over the years. I'm not a I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. <laughs> so you've wrote a book that must have uh, been quite exciting. Tell me more about it. Yeah. So um, going back to 2018. I was a part of a, a blockchain project, it was a small, small project called Athenium Blockchain, not Ethereum. <laughs> I would have loved to have been a part of Ethereum, but Athenium, a really cool little project. I was the chief marketing officer there. I did that for three years. And uh, essentially what that was, uh, we were aiming to create a, a decentralized learning platform. And so very good concept. I love that concept till, still to this day. But what I was recognizing in my interactions with people, trying to pitch people on this idea, whether it was investors or um, just potential users of the platform, was people didn't even fundamentally understand what Bitcoin, blockchain, or cryptocurrencies were. Um, so there was this, this roadblock where we were asking them to get on board at step five, but they hadn't even started step one. They were where I was at in 2012, 2013 where I just didn't get it. And if I had heard of it, I was skeptical. Or if they had heard of it, they were skeptical. So I found that there was this massive need for people to have a fundamental understanding of what Bitcoin, blockchain, and, and digital assets are. And so I resigned from my post as the chief marketing officer. And I that this was late last year, late 21. And I said, I'm going to write a book that simplifies these concepts. I'm just a regular guy. I'm a, I was in a, a, an entrepreneur and a small business owner for you know 14 years. I'm not particularly sophisticated. I, I talked to you for you know, 15, 20 minutes before the show, and I'm just blown away at how sophisticated uh, you, know, you are in the crypto space between trading and mining and all those things. Um, I'm not on your level as that, but what I can do is help other regular people like me understand some of these concepts. Like, What does it mean to have a trustless network? The history of money is centralized banks, right? It's in the name. Our, our central banks here in the United States, we have the Federal Reserve, which they don't call it a central bank, but that's exactly what it is. Our system is built on a trusted system. Unfortunately, not a lot of people trust that system and probably for good reason, because there's a, it's very opaque. We don't really get to see what's going on either in the European Central Bank or in the, you know, the Federal Reserve or any of the, the central banks around the world. And so what does it mean to have the world's first trustless monetary system? Um, the way I would explain that is, you know, this is what I, this is what I love to share with my friends all the time is why, why is a trustless system better than a trusted system? Well, trustless doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you can't trust it. It means that there's actually no need for trust in a trustless system. And what I mean by that is 
when was the last time you went through an intersection when you're driving your car? And when you had a green light, you're going northbound and east and west, they have a red light because obviously traffic stops so you can go through the intersection. When you go through the intersection, you're usually not worried for your life. You're usually pretty confident that the east and westbound traffic are stopped because there's an algorithm that plans out and coordinates that intersection. And so I don't go through intersections worried that I'm going to get crashed into. Maybe I peek around, but ultimately I trust the algorithm because it has a simple function. The, the, the algorithm just says if north and southbound traffic gets a green light, then east and westbound traffic gets a red light. I don't have to trust in it. I don't have to hope that the guy's doing his job. It's an algorithm that serves a simple function. And that's what Bitcoin was. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's just a simple algorithm that says, if person A wants to send money or funds or value to person B, that's it. There's nobody in between. There's no bias. There's, there's nothing. Um, and so explaining things like that to people, you get to see the light bulb go off. And uh, so my job is, and my mission right now, is to help onboard people to step number one. And if you're at step number two or step number three, hopefully equipping those people with some tools so that they can help their friends understand step one or step two. So that's kind of my mission right now. And that's really what the book's about. It's, it's called Bitcoin Evangelism. The idea is here's some, some examples, here's some easy, uh, easily explained concepts about some potentially complicated things, but here's how you can break them down and, and hopefully explain them to yourself and to other people. So jumping into some of the chapters of the book, on chapter two, we have the eight qualities of sound money. What are they? Yeah, so the eight qualities. And, and so if you dive into a textbook, you're going to see uh, kind of a, a smattering of of different things that could be sound money. Um, so the probably most important quality of sound money, and this is why gold functioned as sound money for so long, but it would be limited supply. So scarcity is 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 very very important. Um, fungibility is is another thing. So um, we're we're very familiar with what fungible means today. Most people are non fungible tokens uh, means that. The two things, there, there's nothing, so if I have a non-fungible token, there's no other token that's like this. Well, in currencies and money, you actually want things to be fungible. Um, if I have a, a pound, then I want another pound bill or coin to be able to equal that. And so it's not like a one pound is, this, this pound bill is different than another pound bill. Those need to be transferable. So uh, immutability, or excuse me, not immutability, uh, scarcity, fungibility, um, and then divisibility are, are some of the most important. Those are probably your top three uh, core foundational parts of money. So that's why gold was great as a store of value, but it wasn't very divisible. Uh, you, if you want to go to the store and buy some coffee, you're not going to take your gold coins in because you, you're not going to shave off a little bit of gold. It's great for passing value to your future generation. But that's one of the one of the areas where Bitcoin is vastly superior to gold because it's highly divisible. Um, for those that aren't familiar with it, the Satoshi is the smallest unit of, of Bitcoin. That's one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. So it's, it's much more divisible than even a dollar. Um, it's much more divisible than a euro or a pound or anything like that. Some of the other qualities would be portability. Um, you have to be able to move money. It's got to be durable. It's got to last across generations. You, you, you can't be worried that it's going to 
um, deteriorate in your pocket or that uh, moths are going to get it. Like I said, limited supply, absolutely critical to uh, to being able to store value. Um, and that's another another tenant of, of money. You have to be able to store value. If something's going to lose value tomorrow, then, then that's not an effective uh, form of money. So in my book, I talk about um, commodities like oranges. The city that I grew up in, it's called, it's this little city called Riverside, California. This city was put on the map by producing the world's oranges. We produced most of the world's citrus from our city. And in the early, or excuse me, yeah, the early 1900s, late 1800s, we were the wealthiest city per capita because we produced oranges. But none of the orange growers stored their wealth in oranges because it wasn't durable. Um, and then you can get into some of the more tangential benefits or, or qualities of money, acceptability. Thing, people need to be able to accept it. Um, it needs to be a unit of account. So there has to be a way to, um, to count it over time. And that's an area where uh, my accountant disagrees <laughs> that Bitcoin's actually good as a unit of account because he thinks in terms of taxes, if you can't pay your taxes in it, it's not an effective unit of account. I would argue that unit of account, Bitcoin's actually the most effective unit of account that we've ever seen because the ledger is actually audited every 10 minutes by all of the nodes on the network. I mean, you're a miner, so you actually audit the, the ledger every 10 minutes. I, I, I have a lightning network. I, I run a full node at my house. Um, I audit the, the network every 10 minutes. Um, it's nothing that I do uh, that I have to think about. But if there's ever a transaction that I want to see on the network or anybody wants to see on the network, it can be viewed at any time. It's probably the most effective unit of account uh, that we've ever seen. And one of the things that I, that I express in that chapter, aside from the eight qualities of sound money, one quality that fiat currency doesn't have, gold, rye stones, any of history's money, we've used cattle in the past. One of the things that none of those have is that we live in a digital world now. And so money has to be digital um, and no other form of money is digital. So Bitcoin is a, is a first mover in that space. And uh, I think that it's just an inevitability that um, digital always triumphs over analog. And I think that's what we're seeing here. That's why we're seeing the rise of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. It's an interesting one is that, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that makes... Bitcoin is so special. I mean, I don't use cash anymore. I, I didn't use cash for years. And I, I think for me, the key thing with Bitcoin is uh, it's limited, obviously, by the 21 million. And not a lot of people know the, the, the vast effect of printing uh, money has effect on their wealth. If we take the dollar, a dollar when it was first created, over a hundred years ago was worth a dollar. Now today in today's society, it's worth two cents. So if I was to buy a house in the 1970s, that same house, if I was say for instance, paying a hundred dollars for it, I would probably get maybe a 10th of that house if that, and not a lot of people realize just the effect of, of inflation now, obviously at the moment it's, it's on everyone's mind is inflation, you know, be even before the, the war, we had a major problem with, with inflation in both the U S and the UK. And I do think we're going to see interest rates rise. Um, I do think we've been printing far too much money, which obviously has had the, uh, bubble effect on the stock market. Cause obviously when everyone's been getting this extra money, they've been going, Hmm, what should I do with this money? 
oh, we'll stick it into into the stock market. And then obviously now we're seeing the NASDAQ uh, pull back considerably. Netflix, as an example, is down 69% since the beginning of this year. You know, you've seen the likes of Facebook drop massively even in one day. Now, if you actually compare that with the performance of crypto, now what you tend to find in the press is when Bitcoin swings by 5 to 10%, everyone gets the big flags out and goes, oh, Bitcoin's dropped by 10%. But the fact of the matter is, is if you actually look at the performance of Bitcoin or Arefium compared to some of the blue chip tech stocks, actually Bitcoin's done better. And I think, I think long-term it's going to do really, really well. I do think we're always going to have some sort of fluctuation, uh, but I think as, as the supply gets more and more scarce, Obviously, with the mining, obviously, as we have the halvening, which basically means every number of years, we get half the reward, which has the effect of uh, less Bitcoins coming into supply over a period of years, effectively controls the emissions, we're going to see Bitcoin rise. And, and we may not see it rise this year because of all the bad news that we're getting all at once. And I do think we are going to, effectively enter into a recession. I do think that you've got good strategies within crypto to protect yourself from that uh, inflation. I mean, if you take Michael Saylor as an example, he's like, if you stick, if you've got cash on your, on your bank balance in your company, you're losing money. And it, it, it's an interesting one because obviously if you have it in Bitcoin, then obviously potentially you can borrow against it. You don't need to sell it, so you don't need to transfer it out. And it's, it, it's uh, secure, a hell of a lot more secure than holding cash under the mattress, so to speak. So I, I think there's many, many reasons for, for, for holding Bitcoin. But I think one of the key things is, is the I word, inflation, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit a lot of really fascinating points right there. I think inflation is the, is the number one. I think in the gold and crypto industry, we're used to having heard about inflation for the last several years, even before COVID. Um, you know, we like to talk about our limited supply and we like to talk about how the, the central banks can print uh, currency as much as they want. So that's, that's been a narrative for a long time. I think it's something that the rest of the world's kind of coming on board to um, because of what, you know, all the stimulus that they've seen. And that's one of the things that I, I, I want to share with my friends. I, I have a lot of conservative friends. I have a lot of very liberal friends here in the United States and my, my more liberal friends that they, they, they care about other people. And so their politics lead them to vote for big government policies and entitlements and, and increased welfare and increased unemployment benefits, which aren't inherently bad things. I think we need to have social safety nets. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a libertarian, but I understand where, where they're coming from on those things. The problem is they vote for bigger government spending, which is going to inflate the currency. And at the same time, because like I talked about that trusted system that we have in the middle um, that we can't really trust all that much, in the United States, they state that uh, inflation is eight and a half percent. The consumer price index is at eight and a half percent. And if you if you studied how they aggregate that information, it's 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 pretty wanky. It's it's not accurate. So, for example, Crest toothpaste is a popular toothpaste brand here in the United States. For example, if if in 2021 that Crest toothpaste, which is like the high end brand, 
it goes up from $2 to $2.20 this year. Well, what they do is they don't say, oh, that was a 10% increase in, that, in the price of that good. They adjust the consumer price index and they'll now, instead of calculating it based on the top brand, Crest Toothpaste, they'll calculate it based on the generic brand. They'll say, well, the generic brand is only $2. And so there was actually zero inflation in that category for toothpaste because even though you had Crest last year, you could use the generic brand this year and you're still only spending $2. Never mind that the generic brand was at $1.80. So it actually had more than a 10% increase. But they would that those are the types of things that the type of trickery that gets that gets thrown into um, these inflation numbers. So if we're seeing eight and a half percent consumer price index numbers here in the United States, anybody that I know that manages capital, they're treating inflation as though it's in the 12 to 15 percent range. That's how they treat their their loss of buying power from one year to the next. And so why that's so bad and why I try to share with my friends that that vote for big government spending is hey, just so you know, the reason why they keep that suppressed is one, they don't want people to panic, but two, all the entitlements that people get, whether it's welfare or or health insurance through the state or, or unemployment benefits, any of that stuff, from year to year, they'll bump up your payments, they'll bump up your welfare payment, but they'll only bump it up eight and a half percent. And if inflation's actually at 15%, the people that are getting government entitlement payments are actually losing out, they're becoming poorer and they're getting worse buying power every single year. So the people that are being robbed from aren't people that are in, that have investable assets like you or I, it's not people that are the ultra wealthy billionaires. They're actually getting that Delta. They're getting that difference between what stated inflation is and what inflation is actually at, because all the people that either have their, their money in cash or that have, that are getting checks from the state are becoming poorer from one year to the next. So the divide is actually, you might see, oh, people are getting, they say, oh, my welfare check's going up. So I'm getting more money. You're not, you're getting more nominal dollars, but you're getting less buying power. And so as simple as that is, you and I understand that, but unfortunately a lot of people don't. And that's some of the insidiousness of, of these centralized financial systems. And, um, where the first half of my book, I talk about the fundamentals of Bitcoin and blockchain. The second half of my book, I talk about macroeconomics, how the banking system works, how the banking system is reformed and the implications they have and why hard digital assets are kind of the fix for that. And so, yeah, I mean, everything you said is, is true. Inflation is a, is a real problem. Um, one thing that I would, I would not disagree with, but to what you said is that because I agree that the rates, are, the interest rates are going to go up. Certainly, um, our Federal Reserve is going to be increasing our interest rates over here. I actually think because of political pressure, they're I think they're trying to do or at least come off as though they're doing the responsible thing by causing a recession. And it sounds like well, a, rece- a recession is not a responsible thing. It's probably I mean we should have had some recessions already. We have so much government intervention that we've haven't, we haven't had the recession that we probably should have had for, for several years. I think they're going to allow one more quarter of declining growth so we can technically say we had a recession here in the United States. And then I think because of that, we're in, a, we're in an election year here in the United States. So our midterm elections for Congress and Senate um, are coming up. I think there's going to be a lot of political pressure to actually 
increase spending and, and make sure that the, the recession is not that bad. Because here in the United States, the Democrats are in power. We have the Democrats have the Congress, they have the presidency, they don't have the Supreme Court. But um, as far as laws and legislation and the executive branch, the Democrats kind of rule. And so they don't want to lose that power in this upcoming election. I think that there's a lot going against them right now. I think they need the economy to be cranking. So I think that we're going to see the next few months are going to have some rate increases. But we saw this in 2018. The Federal Reserve here raised interest rates just a little bit. The economy didn't like it. And so they went back. So our, our Federal Reserve is, is very finicky. And so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, ultimately they, they, they bring the interest rates back down or don't continue to raise them. Um, and one other thing I'd add to that is, again, thinking about game theory, the problem with the Federal Reserve or the United States, uh, well, the Federal Reserve is not part of the United States, but uh, it's a it's a company. It's a it's its own. It's it's not. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with that, but um, our Federal Reserve, our central bank, is actually a private entity. It's not it's not controlled by the government. It's not. Uh, there's they get political appointees, but they have shareholders in the Federal Reserve. It, it's it's very it's a very strange concept, but. I don't think the Federal Reserve will continue to raise rates that much because the number one debtor in the world is the United States. Well, not in the world, but in, in our country, the government has the most debt. We have $30 trillion, or over $30 trillion in debt. And so if they raise interest rates, any new debt that our country takes on is going to kind of be unsustainable. Our, our it's principal like payments- shooting yourself in the foot, isn't it? It's going to be shooting ourselves in the foot. Our principal payments by, I think, 2025, will be our biggest line item expense uh, on our country's budget. We spend, our country spends about $750 billion on national defense, military. Military spending is, is absolutely insane in the United States. We spend a lot on our military. Our interest payments and debt service payments are going to be about $900 billion per year in about two years from now. And that's without increased interest rates. So I think it's an unsustainable model for them. And I think the only option is for them to continue to print the dollar so that their debt kind of gets deflated in terms of what it, so yes, the debt will go up, but the dollar will lose value faster. And so their debt, fixed rate debt will become less expensive on a relative basis. It is, it's definitely an interesting one. I, I think the thing is, is I, I think from an ordinary person point of view, Cryptocurrency uh, adoption is really important. It can be game-changing. It can be life-changing. I was, I was reading a research article the other day that the, and, and we have quite a bit of um, experience in this because we actually do outsource to the Philippines for our admin and have done for quite some time from 2005. And the average salary in the Philippines back then when we first started was $60. And we were paying... Uh, over three dollars an hour at the time, we pay more now. We pay about six or seven dollars, and that's a really good wage over there. But basically, uh, the the Filipinos there's a hell of a lot of people that don't even have bank accounts, and uh, Axie Infinity, uh, which is a play to earn game, and Peg Axie, over two million Filipinos adopted play to earn, and we're earning anything up to a thousand dollars. Now, the average salary still in the Philippines as we speak is about $260 a month. So absolute game changer for them. A real kind of life changer. Now, as it is, they didn't quite get the emissions right on the coin. 
And obviously the issue, and this is an issue with a lot of the uh, crypto projects that we see out there, they don't control the remissions, which then has a downward pressure effect on the, on the prices. Now, as we see more projects coming out that are thinking about the tokenomics and are thinking about how they control the emissions, and obviously now we're seeing, as an example, with VIP 1559, with the improvement protocol for ETH, they're now burning ETH. And obviously that has a deflationary effect, which is keeping it in balance. And I think quite a few of the coins uh, will will adopt that. I would. Yeah, I think that's going to be a popular mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah. I think so, because I think it's going to make a difference. I mean, I don't think we'd have seen the price collapse on peg axis, as an example, if there'd have been a deflationary element uh, built in a lot better and also buying pressure. Uh, now, obviously, there's always buying pressure on Bitcoin because of uh, how the mining works and obviously because of the limitation of the 21 million, which comes back to it. Uh, obviously, as we see more printing, it is definitely, as you say, one way to get the debt down for the Federal Reserve. And I do think, though, but if, if more and more people hold currency, a cryptocurrency, then they're not going to be affected as much by the inflationary issues mm-hmm. uh, that, that we are seeing, especially as this, obviously, if someone's saving for a house and they're doing that in crypto and they're taking advantage of DeFi, which is amazing. Yeah. That they would, the bankers, if you told them that that was happening, the bankers that don't know about DeFi would just laugh at you. They'd say, oh, no, nobody would ever give you 15% on your, on your cash. That, that's just, that, that's not in their realm. They don't even, it's not even in their paradigm of how they think. Well, it's interesting you should say that because what's happening in a lot of these big protocols that have decent, uh, decent returns, you know, you've got Aave, is the banks are getting involved. But just the, it, whether we're getting the mediocre returns of say six to seven percent in index following, so to speak, they're now getting better returns by not doing anything by putting them in a stable coin. Mm-hmm. Especially this year, obviously, we're seeing you know with, with assets going down. I mean, if we go to DeFi Llama as an example, because it has it's just there's over 202 billion locked in DeFi with curve been the highest which is actually a stable coin that's incredible i mean that's that's light years beyond where the space was even in 2017 i mean we this this the scale of this didn't exist i mean the whole market was was worth that much and now we have that that much total value locked in just some of these some of these protocols it's incredible the growth is phenomenal in and but what, what we're actually seeing is physical money going in i mean yes we're seeing obviously you know prices of coins going up overall over the long term but you're also seeing a, a physical amount of money moving in into into these uh, into these protocols mm-hmm. and i think more as more and more banks realize that this is here to stay it, it, there's an old saying if you can't beat them you join them and i think uh that is definitely um definitely happening especially with stable coins yeah well, yeah, I think you're right. I think that, that they're starting to have their eyes opened, but it, it is pretty interesting to see the disparity between you know, the Goldman Sachs of the world that seem to be very forward thinking on, on crypto, even Wells Fargo, um, you know, probably the biggest bank, one of the biggest banks in the United States, 
they released a, a crypto report on the investment side, very favorable, talking about how there's you know still plenty of upside to come. So the big banks seem to really kind of be in the loop because that's just their their mo. That's what they do. The editor of my book, she, uh, I was actually pretty flattered. She had, she had edited a, a few crypto books um, several years ago, but still wasn't, hadn't bought any Bitcoin. After she read my book, she felt compelled. She, she went out and tried to buy some Bitcoin. She went to Coinbase. Her credit union would not allow her to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase. So we still have banks that won't even allow you to buy, <laughs> to buy crypto on Coinbase through a, a regulated institution. So that there's a huge disparity still amongst banks that there's some that are going to start working in DeFi. <laughs> there's others that are, uh, that are just completely obstinate to this whole process. And so, yeah, I think that why I kind of laugh at that. And I think a lot of us in the crypto space laugh at that. It's just like, you guys aren't allowing her to buy Bitcoin right now in three years you're going to be offering Bitcoin for sale at your bank. So let's just let's just educate you guys and get you guys a little further along because uh, it's an, an inevitability that for some reason, a lot of people don't see. But I think that's also what makes this space exciting is that uh, we're still in the early adoption phase. And so those that are in the space or those that are taking the time to learn about it right now are just the, the potential for shifts in generational wealth and and or just even to be mobile from one wealth class to another is pretty tremendous the amount of people that i've seen build wealth um by just dollar cost averaging into crypto assets um is has been incredible i had a, I had a friend back in 2017 he started buying early 2017 so before the run-up had happened at that point and it just dollar cost averaged all the way up until 2021 um, he paid off the mortgage of his house. He was only four years into his mortgage and paid off his mortgage 26 years early, just because he'd been doing small monthly buys of Bitcoin. And he didn't even sell all of his Bitcoin. He just sold a portion of his Bitcoin. He paid off. He has a, a, a you know, I don't know what he paid for it. His, his house now is valued because all the houses here are incredibly expensive. Um, but his house is $900,000. Now I think he probably paid $500,000 for his house. So he probably had, you know, $400,000 left on his mortgage. And uh, just through dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin and Ethereum, he paid off his house and didn't even sell all of his assets. And so it's, you know, and he even, we talked about uh, lending or borrowing, um, collateralizing your, your Bitcoin and stuff. He even considered that. He said, oh, well, should I, if I can get a better rate and, and uh, just borrow against my, my Bitcoin, should I just use that capital to pay off my house? And then, you know, so, cause he didn't want to part ways with his, with his Bitcoin, but for him, it made sense to just have that financial freedom. So now he doesn't have a mortgage. And so he, he buys an extra $2,500 a month of Bitcoin and Ethereum because he doesn't have a, a mortgage to pay. It's an interesting one. You, sh uh, you should say that because we're big advocates of, uh, of, of dollar cost averaging. Hmm. Um, I mean, obviously that's one of the reasons that, we were attracted to uh, crypto mining because when we first entered into into crypto, we were like big in the property and big in buy to light, and we we really like the buy to light model. I uh, you buy your house, you get your rent, and you pay your mortgage, and you're left with an asset at the end of it. Mm. And when we looked at, you know, the uh, asset performance, obviously, of crypto, um, which is the best performing asset of, of all time, 
we could see that there was big fluctuations between, you know, peaks and troughs, like as an example, May of last year down to, to, to June. When we looked at doing the DCA in on the miners, the, the great thing is, is it's, it's a double whammy because obviously you're getting the dollar cost averaging, but what happens on the mining side is that we um, get more coins and get reward more coins as the price is going down because what tends to happen is, is less miners mine because they're not interested in the, in the price. Uh, they're not interested in mining if the price is not high. So there's a set number of miners that come off. And obviously, if you have 100 miners and then you go down to 50 miners, then you're getting the double the rewards. So for us, it's, it is all about holding the coins long term. And obviously, potentially, you know, you have the, the, uh, the ability to collateralize. And I think what, what you mentioned about the institutions, I do think the institutions are keeping it quiet. They're not quite publicizing. Obviously, we've got the Michael Saylors of the world, MicroStrategy, who aren't keeping it quiet. But as an example, there's over 30 institutions privately that have signed up to uh, RV Arc. And RV Arc is the, effectively the institutional side uh, of RV for the investing, where we've got multi-sig wallets and stuff stuff so that you've got multi-signatures and i i think obviously we've seen the likes of uh, warren buffett dump mastercard and dump uh visa they're traditional what i would class as web two stocks and he's invested in neo which is a crypto friendly bank he doesn't want to admit it but he's actually invested in crypto so yeah, he can't go back on his uh, Bitcoin is rat poison squared. You know, he can't he can't yeah. chew on those words yet. I just I think it's funny because he he and Charlie Munger, Charlie Munger, if you watch any of his interviews, which sounds like you do, he's constantly talking about inflation. And it's like the only thing that seems to be missing from his <laughs> what he's talking about with in, in regards to inflation is having a scarce digital asset that allows you to be sovereign over your money. Um, and so it's, yeah, th these guys are coming around, but like you said, it's, it's a branding thing. They can't, they can't admit to that. It's, they've got to stay on brand. They've got to stay in that value investor type of category because even still to this day, cryptocurrencies aren't viewed as a value investment. And that's one of the things I love to talk about is I love to make the case for why crypto as a whole and specifically Bitcoin is a value investment. Um, you could, you could value Bitcoin on any, any number of factors. Like you said, these web two um, types of money transmission technologies. If you even just combine the market caps of Visa, MasterCard, the payment providers, uh, you know, without even including ACH and some of these really, really massive ones, you get market caps within the trillions of dollars. And so my conclusion to that would be, money transmission in the world has inherent value. And so Absolutely. Warren Buffett constantly says, oh, there's no inherent value. Or Peter Schiff says, Bitcoin has no inherent value. No inherent value. What are you talking about? Money transmission is a multi-trillion dollar business. And you can add some sort of multiplier onto that value when you're talking about person-to-person -person transactions. It, it, Web two money transmission is a five party. It's a five party uh, transaction. You're talking about the originating bank, the individual, the, the, the money wire, whether we're talking about Visa, MasterCard, Western Union, whatever.
the receiving bank and then the, the individual receiving the funds. So you're always talking about at least five parties involved, where with Bitcoin, we're talking about a two-party transaction. If Brian wants to send Bitcoin to Chris, it's done. There's not even a, an individual mediary, uh, mediary. So an improved technology that's censorship resistance and has all these different qualities that Bitcoin has, how can you not say it's some multiple of what our current money transmission is in Web2? Um, it, it's shocking to me that, that these guys could say, oh, I'm a value investor, um, and yet they don't see the value in, in Bitcoin. It seems very apparent to me. No, it's, it's definitely interesting. I think, I mean, as you, you touched on, obviously, the transfer of money, Solana, obviously, are known for high-speed transactions. I do think you'll see payment processing take off. And yeah. I think, obviously, now we've seen the introduction uh, of payment processing on the Lightning Network mm -hmm. that was just recently announced at the, the Bitcoin conference. Massive, massive news that, that, that the, price, the price dipped afterwards. I mean, that's how irrational the market is. I mean, to show, talk about value investing. Uh, yeah, the price went down on fundamentally good news. It, it, it's, uh, to me, that's total buy signal for dollar cost averaging. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I, I think obviously we know now we've gotten a few uh, more whales that are manipulating the price so that they can accrue it. I mean, all you need to do is, is look at the on-chain analysis, Glassnode, uh, and, and obviously if you look at the likes of um, how many wallets there are on Bitcoin, we surpassed over 40 million in February of this year. And I, I think the fact of the matter is, is it's growing, it's growing. At the moment, we're not seeing price follow that but i think that's just the macroeconomics uh that we're seeing uh in the turbulent times that we're actually living through but the fact of the matter is is there's more people that are holding bitcoin in cold storage i off the exchanges so they don't they're not going to be looking to sell it than there ever has been so i think the fact that that's happening shows that behind the scenes it is becoming more adopted as a store of value. Yes, we've seen gold rocket. But I mean, then the commodity price index has rocketed. The Goldman, uh, Goldman Sachs uh, commodity price uh, index has rocketed. It looks more like Sheba or what Sheba was because of what's happened overseas over in Ukraine, unfortunately. And the, but the, the fact of the matter is, is until you see that commodity price index come down, which obviously then affects the profits of the companies behind the scenes, you're not going to see the stock market sell. You're still going to be seeing, I still think we're in a, we're in a bit of a downward trend as we speak. Still, we're still seeing a sell-off. But obviously, I think we've, we've got to remember that we've been in a bull market for 10 years. And obviously, people are very, very fickle. They forget these, these facts. You know, when people come to me and say, oh, Bitcoin's going down by 5%. So, like, oh my God, Chris, it's like, no, hang on a minute, mate. You know, Bitcoin is, is the best performing asset of all time. And you're just looking at, you know, what's happened last week. You're not looking yeah. at, you know, where it's come from. And it is, it is, uh, it's interesting how, you know, the likes of Fox News or CBS jump on board with the bad news, but they don't actually come through and, and, tell you all about what's going on with the, you know, with the improvements, you know, i.e. 
the, the fact that you can now go into a supermarket and pay with Bitcoin. Yeah. And yeah, no, not, that, the average person the does not know that. Yeah, they don't know that. And it, it is, it's, uh, as it becomes more widely popularized, I think it'll just take off. Now, question for you. Uh, I always ask everyone this, um, which is interesting because your books really kind of keenly focused, uh, keenly focused on helping people that haven't or don't really know about uh, crypto. What would you say to a non-believer? So somebody, it's a non-believer. They that you're yeah. trying to say, hey, this is why you should you should like Bitcoin. Um, I, first, I mean, this is kind of sales 101, and I don't mean to sound salesy, but what it, I do sales for my for my day job and my business. I always you always have to ask questions. So I guess I would need to know where this person's coming from. Um, if they're a liberty-minded person, I, I would speak to the liberty components of. A decentralized network and and that's sounds complicated and i think that's why a lot of people don't want to talk about that um how do i get into decentralized networks and how do i get into an immutable an immutable ledger and what does that mean that's right it's really important to understand these fundamentals so if you're you're speaking to somebody say in canada i don't know if you followed any of the canadian trucker convoy uh did, did, yeah. yeah so that was a big thing i think a, a lot of people i know here in the United States, kind of no matter what side of the political aisle they were on, they thought that was a pretty shocking thing. So in that case, I would say, well, do you agree with, you know, the, the trucker protest? And if they were somebody that says, yeah, I agree that, you know, these truckers had the right to be there and protest and yada, yada, yada. Well, I would say, did you know that the, the government said that they were not able to receive funds? And so they were actually subpoenaing um, or, or just kind of regulating the, the incoming flows. So if uh, somebody sent money through Venmo or PayPal or anything like that, they could actually freeze the bank account um, of the person receiving the funds. With Bitcoin, they can't do that. And so there was all sorts of stories and um, kind of anecdotal testimonies about truckers that were being given paper Bitcoin wallets in order to buy fuel, in order to buy food that kind of kept the protest going. And so whether or not you believe that that was a good protest, whether you believe that, you know, that their message was a message that you agree with, at the end of the day, there might come a time when the message that you believe in could get censored. And so Bitcoin is a viable option for you. On the other side of this, We've seen that with with Russia and this Ukraine thing. I think most people probably don't agree with <laughs> with Russia and what they're doing. Um, and so we'll kind of come at it from that side of if you, if you don't agree with it. This is kind of what a fair system looks like. I know there was a lot of talk, especially at the beginning of, well, we're going to be censoring or, or um, uh, um, sequestering or God, I can't think of the word. We're going to be sanctioning, excuse me, sanctioning. Russia's finances. Uh, so we're going to cut them off from the rest of the world. They're not going to be able to uh, to do commerce with with other countries. We're going to freeze payment rails. We're going to freeze freeze bank bank accounts. We're going to seize assets. And so we saw individuals get censored in Canada. We've actually even seen the centralized banks are so powerful they can actually censor entire countries, not small countries. They can they can censor entire powerful countries in the world. So. Being able to have a network that operates outside of that, there's going to be times when you like it and there's going to be times when you don't. But just remember, at the end of the day, if you ever need that, that's there for you. So to me, I think in the context of the last two years with COVID and all sorts of mandates coming through and things like that, 
I think that more people have been concerned with Bitcoin from the liberty-minded side of things. They, this is a way for me to um, opt out of systems. And so if I'm talking to somebody, that, that's going to usually be the, the way that I go. Um, if I'm talking to just the, the average person, I usually go back to what I shared at the beginning of the show. I'll talk about how until Bitcoin was created, there was no way to make digital things scarce. So as soon as the blockchain came along, and we could cap digital things that made it so that the world can have actual digital money in the future. Because because before then there was no way to do that. And again, it's a process of asking questions. You got to meet people where they're at. A lot of times, the uh, the people that I talk to that are skeptical of Bitcoin. So say they're not um, somebody that is kind of neutral on it. Most people I know that are skeptical or against Bitcoin they tend to, to appeal to the environmental uh, argument. And so they say, oh, well, Bitcoin's bad for the environment. And I'll say, I'll ask, well, how much worse is a Bitcoin miner than an electric vehicle? How much more does a Bitcoin miner pollute than your Tesla car? And they'll say, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And I would say, I actually do know the answer. <laughs> your Bitcoin miner is no more polluting. It, it, it puts off no more carbon than a Tesla does because electric devices don't put off carbon. Their fuel source can. And so if you're plugging in your Tesla to recharge it, but your fuel supply is coal, you're using a carbon emitting fuel source. Um, if I'm plugging my Bitcoin miner into a solar panel, then I'm net, net zero on my carbon emissions. And so what's the problem with that? And so when you start to talk to people like that, and then they'll usually counter with, but I heard that Bitcoin uses more, Bitcoin mining uses more electricity than entire countries. And you counter and you would ask them, well, what size of countries are we talking about? First of all, they'd say, I don't know, entire countries, that's huge. Well, do you know that countries vary in size? So the countries they're actually talking about are countries like Ireland or you know a smaller country with a, a four to six million population. And I would just counter that by saying, in the United States, we use more electricity on our Christmas lights in the month of December than the entire Bitcoin mining network uses in an entire year. Plus 60% of the Bitcoin network, it's estimated that is coming from green renewable energy, um, which is about three times more than our current banking system. Our, our current banking systems use about 20% or less renewable energy. They're usually mo mostly using carbon emitting fuel sources. Bitcoin, one, uses vastly less energy than our current banking system, uh, you know, ATMs, office buildings, computers, all that kind of stuff. But the energy that we do use is about three times cleaner. So it really varies. You're going to have people come from all different angles, but that's why I think the book's important. Um, it's, it's, it's about 300 pages, but I actually think it's a pretty, pretty good read. Uh, 300 page books might be too much for some people, might not be that, that much for other people, but you're going to get a very firm foundation and understand where people are coming from. Here's different arguments against Bitcoin. Here's uh, some of the great merits of Bitcoin. Here's the way to appeal to different people coming from different perspectives. You make quite a few interesting points there. I mean, I think there is definitely a, a misconception amongst people that don't too, know too much about Bitcoin. And I think it's down to the bad press potentially that Bitcoin is dirty, that it, um, it uses a lot of energy. The fact of the matter is it does use a lot of energy. But the whole point of, of mining 
is that if to create value, it has to be hard to get. So obviously, if that means spending a lot of money on the mining machines and then spending a lot of money on energy, then that is effectively what prevents forging. Now, interestingly, uh, the banking system uses about 238 terawatts per year. The gold community, obviously to melt gold, uses 240. Bitcoin uses less than half that. Now, what's interesting is you've you've pointed out is about the green. Now we obviously, as you know, are miners and quite a few of my staff at the time when I first went into mining were like, oh, we've got to be green, Chris. We've got to be green. Uh, and I, and I, I won't class myself as a green individual personally, but I do listen to people. And basically when we set out, we said, right, we want to be 100% green. And it took us a while to work out how to do that. Obviously, we, we mine off farms and we use anaerobic digesters and effectively that's the manure. Now, what normally happens with uh, this energy is it gets sold back to the grid and the farmers get peanuts. And it's a bit like the milk scenario. The supermarkets screw the farmers, they get paid peanuts and the farmers stay poor, which is not fair. Now, we, we, we believe in being fair, so we're paying a decent kilowatt hour pence per usage, so to speak, to the farmers. And it's 100% green. And it's enabling the farmers to invest more, uh, invest more in what they're doing and to make their environment 100% green. So it's having positive effects on local communities, and people don't know this uh, unless they delve into it. And obviously, we're seeing massive investment in, in Texas, uh, because of the you know the power stations, because a lot of the Bitcoin miners have moved there, because obviously it's, it's a great place mm-hmm. to be from a solar panel point of view. It just means that the end consumer is going to get a better deal. Without the Bitcoin miners, without the movement of moving from the dirty energy, because that's how the Bitcoin started out uh, originally in China, over to the US, yet the penny drops with the, the miners, and the, and the penny is this. If I can make my energy myself, then I can print money, literally. <laughs> and and that, that is the great thing about mining. Now, the fact is, if you're buying dirty energy, are you going to be buying it for the rest of your life on mining? Yes, you would be. But the fact of the matter is, is when you look at the American investors and you look at the big institutional investors and you look at Riot as an example, they're looking long term. They're not looking six months. They're not even looking a year. They're looking five to ten years, and they're going right. What's my return on investment? What's the best way of uh, maximizing this? And they go, it's green energy. It's green energy all the way. So the crypto industry is actually pushing more innovation with green energy, probably than any other industry. Um, but you have yeah. a financial incentive to do so, right? Absolutely. And whenever there's a financial incentive, no matter what market we're in, whatever sector we're in, that's what drives change. And it it, it is, and obviously if you're looking at it going, right, I can make more money, I can make more profits. It drives change because it's like, well, I will do this because it's going to make this. Now, what you find is obviously, and this is coming back from my experience and being in, you know, in 14 years in investment banking, the banks were in a monopoly 
and they were making loads of money. And they were like, well, if it ain't broke, it don't fix it. And it's interesting listening to the Bitcoin conference. Payment processing hadn't really changed since the 1970s. But obviously now with what they're doing, it's a bit of a game changer, especially from an energy point of view. Because if you don't have all these middlemen, that does actually mean less energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. The offset is incredible. I mean, yeah, I think we there's so many unintended positive consequences of Bitcoin mining. Like you said right there, if you take out middlemen, that's middlemen inherently require energy. And uh, that right there is going to be a massive net savings. Um, so yeah, you've raised a bunch of really interesting points that, I mean, I think about this stuff all day, but it's really, but I don't, I don't mind Bitcoin myself. And so hearing from a miner like you, you have a really sound perspective on this and it's really honestly edifying for myself to hear. It is. I'm excited about it because I mean, it's been a really exciting journey. I mean, obviously we only got into mining, uh, May of last year, and obviously, we've done a massive amount of investment. We've done a, a massive amount of design on, on the infrastructure with what we're doing. But we do see it as a long-term project. As do we see DeFi. We see DeFi as a game-changer for crypto, and DeFi as a game-changer for everyday man on the street. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a genius to work out you are going to get a hell of a lot of better return than if you just decided to put it in a ordinary investment trust or, right. or oink or unit trust as we call them over here in the uk mm-hmm. and if you look at the average percentage on the average uh unit trust uh for a pension it is the performance is absolutely dire in the uk i don't know whether it is over in the us but we don't uh, you know the, the the pensions over here yeah. uh, are, are not very good at performance and they take so many fees it's like five, six percent a year mm-hmm. is taken off my pension. So it's like I get my pension statement, it's like well, we've had six percent fees taken yeah. and we've done four percent on capital return. It's like, hang on a minute, we yeah. have inflation running it. Okay, we'll we'll believe you it's at eight percent. Yeah. <laughs> I've made two percent. I'm actually down. Yeah, that's a pretty frustrating thing. It's like you're running uphill with the parachute on or something. Absolutely. Whereas with DCA and into something with very little fees and, and what I do is, is when I look at the DEXs, I'm, I'm in the DEXs like um, Trader Joe's, an example on Avalanche. I create liquidity pairs. So when we mine, we move them into liquidity pairs. So we'll move them into AVAX, we'll move them into potentially a stable coin and we'll then get a transaction fee for having that liquidity contract. So obviously we're effectively being the bank and getting paid for being the bank. And and the great thing about that is, is basically we can then, for instance, on that particular one on Trader Joe, you can get paid in, in a stable coin. So there's ways of being in crypto and being in crypto safely and getting really good returns. Because obviously that as just for the viewers, a stable coin is pegged to effectively one dollar equals one one stable coin so to speak. right so the person that says oh i don't want to be in bitcoin or crypto because of the volatility so i don't want my assets sitting there so, no your asset at least half of it is sitting in a stable coin while you're providing liquidity absolutely and then this is what we said to people who were saying look hang on a minute 
if you don't want to be in the risky stuff and by by god there's some bloody risky stuff mm-hmm. out there and you know i like taking a little bit of risk in fact i like taking a lot of risk but the fact is not everyone wants to do that and if you look at for all the viewers out there if we look at stable coin if we look at you know the curve protocol if we look at them and say there's something for everyone in crypto but what i always say is, is and obviously you know with bitcoin we know there's specific with Bitcoin, it's about store of value and it is the big daddy of crypto. What I say about the other coins is when you're looking at it, always make sure it's got good tokenomics. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and I think that's absolutely critical. If we look at the good tokenomics, then potentially people, if they do the research and they pick one with good tokenomics, it's going to give crypto a really good name because those are the ones that are going to be invested in. Because obviously we know there's quite a few bad Ponzi schemes. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example of a coin with really bad tokenomics. There was a, there was a coin back in the day called Ember coin. And when proof of stake started to become popular, there were a lot of coins came coming out with incredible inflation rates. So you could stake it. And I think this one for the first year, it had a 72, uh, 7,200% staking reward to it. And uh, then the next year went down to, oh, they were, they said they were responsible because it went down over time. So the second year it was 720%, then 72%. But in the first year they crashed themselves. They crashed the coin because the 7,200% staking reward was unsustainable for the model. And uh, it suppressed the price of the coin, made it go to zero. And uh, just, yeah, the tokenomics itself didn't matter what else the project did. The tokenomics destroyed the project. So that's a really critical piece for anybody that's investing in the space. It's yeah, absolutely critical component of what you're investing into. And uh, when you said you like to take risk, it, it made me think of, of an analogy that I, that I like to use and, and why not the analogy is not about risk, but the analogy is about how game-changing DeFi is. Um, Cause you think about what what's the purpose that investment banks or banks in general, why do they exist? It's not, people think, oh, it's to hold my money. No, it's it's to get your money from you so that they can lend it out, right? To make Correct. money on your money. Absolutely. And so the analogy I use is kind of all of banking history, we've been the players at the casino. We've never been able to be the casino. We could only be the player coming in to play blackjack or play craps or whatever it is. And the banks were the casino. With DeFi, what DeFi represents is the first time that regular individuals like you and I get to be the house. We get to be on the lending side of it. And so now, who, no, I mean, yes, being the player at the casino is fun, but it's incredibly risky and you're going to lose. Over time, you're going to lose. The house will always win. Now we get to be the house because we get to do what the big banks did. We get to lend out our money. We don't have to trust it to somebody else. We get to trust it to ourselves and put it into these protocols and 100% manage it. We have sovereignty over that lending process. And so it's absolutely game changing. And it, it just, it, it's a paradigm shift from everything that was before. Absolutely. It is. It is. I, I think basically that is, if there's one takeaway from this, this episode, it's DeFi. DeFi is the future and DeFi is great for lending and it's great for, for, for saving. And I think yeah. if, if, if people just look into that, they'll be like, my God, this, this is just a game changer for us. Yeah. I know people here in the United States that make a 40 or $50,000 a year salary, which is, which is what some people come out of college making. 
and they've become millionaires. And this isn't, this sounds like a get rich quick pitch, but it's not, it's a, it's a get rich slow pitch because for years they've been taking their salary, a small chunk of it, like you said, dollar cost averaging into it. Then once DeFi came along, they were compounding their compounding growth. So they were double compounding by doing DeFi on top of it. And they literally, between the price appreciation of coins that they were just buying into and holding, and then the ones that they were lending out, they became millionaires off of a $50,000 a year salary. It doesn't require uh, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't know if you've ever read that book. He's Uh a big proponent. (laughs) He's a big proponent of talking about there's, there's rich people and there's wealthy people. And uh, I don't know if he says that so much in the book, in that particular book, but rich people are people that make a big salary, but they don't build wealth. Wealthy people you could have a small salary, you could have a big salary, but generating wealth is a, is a different thing. It has, it's, it's, a, it's having your money, it's when your money is working for you. So you're on vacation, you're making money. You're on the weekend taking a nap, you're making money because your capital doesn't sleep. And in DeFi, DeFi doesn't sleep, crypto markets don't sleep. So you have the ability to be making money 24 seven, building wealth 24 seven, where before, again, the banks built wealth off of your money. Your money sat there, it lied dormant. This is the first time where our capital is absolutely 100% active at all times. It's like we have an employee working for us 24-7-365. And I think that's a really good note to end on. Now, one question for you. Where can viewers find out more about what you do and where would you like them to go? Great. Well, you can follow me on Twitter. My, name, my, my handle is at Brian B T H E Mint. That's uh, I post there a lot. As far as the book, if anybody's interested, you go to freshlymintedbooks.com. Right now, if you can register for the first edition. And so let me tell you what's interesting about the first edition. In addition to all of the, the great things you're going to learn about Bitcoin, I have a really great lesson for teaching people about 24-word seed phrases and securing their wallets. What I've done in the first edition, so anybody that goes on the website right now, you're not even pre-ordering the book. You're just putting your your email address into the website. So again, it's freshlymintedbooks.com. In the first edition of the book, I've hidden 24 words throughout the book, and I've put a $1,000 Bitcoin wallet. uh, I've built or created a $1,000 Bitcoin wallet. The first person that finds those 24 words in the book, when the book releases, you get that $1,000 worth of Bitcoin. So it teaches, it helps teach about how seed phrases work, how private keys work and, and that sort of thing. But you buy the book, you're, excuse me, you go on the website, you don't even have to buy the book yet. Just put your email address in. The book's going to launch um, in a few weeks from now. By the time you guys hear this, it's probably already going to be launched, but you can still register for that, for that first edition. And uh, again, that's going to allow you to get that 24 word seed phrase. And if you're the first one to find it, you get a thousand dollars as of today's value, $1,000 worth of Bitcoin. That sounds fantastic. It's been a pleasure and I wish you well with the book and it'd be great to get you back on in a few months time to see how you're getting on with the, with the book and, uh, and we'll go from there. Great. Thank you, Chris. Hey, it, it was amazing talking to you. I got so much out of this. Uh, I feel like I'm ready for the second book and I'm probably going to have to cite you a lot <laughs> in that second because the questions I get, I've been doing the, the book tour with podcasting. The number one question I get um, is about crypto mining or about Bitcoin mining. 
and so having a miner like you, uh, mining, I, I know about, I can talk about it, but uh, having somebody that's done it like yourself and has done it in a sustainable and, and in, a, in a cost effective way is incredible. So thank you. <laughs> this has been really edifying for me and I would love to be back on at some point. Awesome. That's great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you for joining me today and listening to this episode. As I've gone on my crypto journey myself over the last couple of years, I'm all too aware of the overwhelming amount of information available online when it comes to investing in crypto. So thank you for choosing the Easy Crypto Podcast. It means a lot to me. Hopefully what I've shared today will help you on your investing journey, just like it did me. There's no reason why you can't go and make use of what you've learned today straight away. I'm living proof that these secrets and strategies I've shared with you do work. Please, by all means, feel free to share this with someone else you know who could benefit from it. That's the quickest way that we can build a collaborative community where we can share tricks and strategies which can turn our crypto investments into big profits. In the meantime, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss the latest tricks which could transform your crypto future. Every week, we'll be covering a different aspect of crypto investment. So whether it's NFTs, mining, or the metaverse, you really can't afford to miss out. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Christopher Hitchin, and this is the Easy Crypto Podcast, and I'll see you next time.